Private Lender Podcast, Episode 54. The Private Lender Podcast quote of the day comes to us from Franklin D. Roosevelt, who said, Happiness is not the mere possession of money. It lies in the joy of achievement, in the thrill of creative effort. This is the Private Lender Podcast, the show that shares practical advice and know-how for new and seasoned lenders, from private mortgages on single-family houses to joint ventures on commercial projects and beyond. Discover details about investment vehicles that you won't find at your local bank or online broker. Listen and learn from private lenders and real estate investors, as well as from professionals and entrepreneurs, as they share the details, strategies, and the insight that allows for successful and prosperous lending. Now, get ready to increase your ROI. Here's your host, Keith Baker. Hello and welcome to the Private Lender Podcast, the only podcast that I'm aware of that is dedicated to providing education and real-world case studies that involve the most passive form of real estate investing there is, private mortgage lending. My name is Keith Baker and I will be your host for this episode, number 54, and the first episode of 2019, which is kind of odd because I thought 53 would be, but 53 was released on New Year's Eve. So if somebody wants to go out there and wants to check my math please do so and email me, Keith, at privatelenderpodcast.com. But in all seriousness, my mission is to bring together investors in order to create an alternative economy where people just like you and me can invest and build wealth confidently with old-world pragmatism and without banks or Wall Street. On this episode, I have the great honor to interview Mr. Victor Menashe, who develops real estate across Canada and the United States. But before we get to that interview, let's go ahead and thank our sponsor. This episode of the Private Lender Podcast is proudly sponsored by CountyTaxSaleApp.org. With CountyTaxSaleApp.org, you get a very powerful lead generation tool in the palm of your hand, on your laptop, desktop, or any device you choose. Get real-time alerts for between 300 and 600 properties every month that are coming up for the foreclosure auction in Harris County, Texas, the third largest county in the United States. With this intuitive design and interface, the County Tax Sale app lets you search all properties with highly motivated sellers that are coming up for foreclosure auction. Simply search the map and click on a property to learn important details about that property, such as the address, owner's contact info, minimum bid, and a street view photo. You can save properties to your favorites and contact the sellers directly and receive email and text alerts if one of your favorite properties is redeemed or canceled prior to the auction. You can even listen to Sammy Gupta on episode 28 of this podcast as he discusses all the powerful features and benefits of CountyTaxSaleApp.org. For more information, go to the Private Lender Podcast sponsor page, the show notes page for this episode, or to CountyTaxSaleApp.org. That's CountyTaxSaleApp.org. And if you're listening to this and you can hear my voice, I would appreciate it if you could go check out CountyTaxSaleApp.org as they have added new features like being able to download the complete foreclosure list in Excel or CSV format, including the homeowner information. And also they have added advanced filtering, which you can drill down into specifics of the property, like the size of the square footage of the land, the living area, bid value, and more. I think it is one of the most efficient and economical lead generation techniques available today. And you don't even have to live in the greater Houston area to use it. Third largest Metroplex or MLS, I believe, in the United States. Lots and lots of properties every month going up for foreclosure. And I'd like to thank everyone over at the County Tax Sale app for sponsoring this podcast because I surely do appreciate the support. And of course, thanks to Landon and Ray over at 713RIA.com. Please go check them out as well. All right, back to business. My guest today, Victor Menashe, really threw me a curveball, and I'd like to thank him, number one, 
And number two, say that I think I made a pretty good recovery, but I'll have to let you decide for yourself. And don't worry, because you'll know the moment when it happens. So why don't we just go ahead and cut to the chase and get to the interview with Victor Minaj. Ladies and gentlemen, I am thrilled to have on the podcast today, Mr. Victor Minaj. Victor, welcome to the Private Lender Podcast. Great to be here. Victor and I met back in the summer of 18 at a podcast conference, and I remember we were in a group in a room talking and, and nobody seemed to have a real estate podcast. And then Victor said, well, I've got a real estate podcast. And I interrupted the lady I was speaking with. I said, excuse me, I need to go speak with this man. <laughs> so here we are several months later, you're on the show. So thanks for coming on. And you have an interesting well, background for one. You, you started off kind of in the tech field, but then like many people, either grew tired of it or decided to come over into real estate. And here you are now, you're a developer, you utilize private money, you have a real estate podcast, Real Estate Espresso. So let's try to unpack a little bit about that. Go ahead and uh, tell us a little bit about your journey, how you got to uh, where you are today. A little bit of the backstory. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if I go back to 2009, 2010, I was still working in the tech industry. I was uh, managing a microprocessor development team and we we're basically designing chips that were used in mobile phones and data cards. And we were building a new cellular network in Japan and I was literally traveling back and forth to Tokyo every two weeks, and it was burning me out. It just wasn't the right thing for me. It wasn't the right thing for my family. And so I resigned my position as VP of engineering and decided to take a hard left turn in my career into the world of real estate investing on a full-time basis. And of course, if you remember what was happening back then, uh, it was probably the opportunity of a lifetime to invest in real estate, in particular in the United States. So I took advantage of that opportunity and decided to jump in with both feet. That's where I got my start in the journey. One of the things that I discovered along the way is I had a bunch of skills that were pretty portable. Project management is a very portable skill. It doesn't matter whether you're managing software development or microprocessor development or new construction. It's kind of all the same. And then the other key skill was the ability to raise capital. And I learned how to raise money in the tech industry and I can tell you it's much more difficult to go raise $5 million for an idea than it is to raise money for something that's going to cash flow in six months. So those are vastly different and uh, was able to transport that skill set over into the world of real estate as well. Okay. So how, going to Tokyo every two weeks. Absolutely. How long a flight was that for you? Uh, in the summertime, it was, it was a direct flight from Toronto. So 13 hours into Narita Airport was pretty good. In the wintertime, I had to fly through Vancouver, so that added another five and a half hour flight as an appetizer to the big flight. <laughs> yeah, I can see where you get burned out of that real quick. Yeah. You're in Canada, in fact, right? Yes. Yes. So I live in Ottawa, Canada, kind of halfway between Montreal and Toronto, almost due north of New York City. Even though it's kind of central Canada, we still refer to it as East Coast, but it is somewhat central Canada. And you're still in Ontario, if, I'm, if my geography is correct. So you are English speaker, well, English first, and then Quebec next door to you has the French. So exactly. welcome. You are my first Canadian interview on this podcast. And if anyone knows me, they know that I am a obnoxiously huge Rush fan. And Toronto is my second favorite city in the world because of that. Unfortunately, those guys have retired and hung up their axes. But they did. In fact, back in the 1980s, I was a roadie and did a bunch of shows with Rush, did some special effects, set up Neil Peart's drum kit a few times. And they were amazing, amazing people to work with. Oh, okay. All right. My friends who grew up with me are laughing right now that, okay, Rody. All right. We'll unpack that another time. There you uh, go. <laughs> but, holy crap. That's awesome. 
in the 80s. I'm, I'm just curious what years. I have to ask. I have to follow up with one question. So this would have been probably 81 through 83. And back at that time, I was working with a lot of different shows. Burton Cummings, the National Ballet of Canada, Krista Berg, Harmonium. We were the opening act for Super Tramp. All kinds of different stuff. It was a very fun time in my career. I can only imagine that's in the moving picture signals coming yes. into grace under pressure era for the rush fans out there. And I'm going to do my best to get back to real estate here, but that, <laughs> that was, a, that was a hell of a curveball, Victor. That's awesome. Thank you for that. That's really cool. Okay. So we've established your Canadian. You've worked with on some rush shows. You're my new favorite person, best interview ever on this show, just from that fact. And now I'm really throwing off kilter, but you have a, a successful career in tech and you get burned out flying to uh, Japan. I totally understand that. Was it the portability of your skills into real estate that made it so attractive or was this something that's always kind of itching at you all along? Well, it was a couple of things. The idea of building wealth in technology is kind of like saying I want to win the lottery when I grow up. You know, it's really a very difficult uh, road. And unless you have the depth of pockets of an Intel or a Samsung, it's very, very difficult to be successful, especially on the hardware side. You know, if I told you that to design a new microprocessor chip, the minimum investment is 50 to $60 million, that maybe in four years, I'll make you your money back. And maybe by year five, I'll give you a profit. Are you lining up for that investment? Probably not. And that's unfortunately the reality of that business. You know, that just makes it really challenging. One of the things that I really look for is opportunities where you can do things that where there's leverage, where it's not consolidated down to three players uh, where it's a wide open market and real estate kept coming up over and over again as having those characteristics. You know, there's the opportunity for leverage. If you look at where a lot of the wealth in the world has been created, it's been in real estate or in oil and gas, but first and foremost in real estate. And so it just kept coming up over and over again. And it's given me the opportunity to exercise a creative side. You know, my mother was an architect and if I hadn't gone into engineering, I probably would have gone into architecture loving the new development these days. The fact that we get to exercise a creative muscle here and build new product that fits a particular need and is aesthetically pleasing, is functional. That to me is just so much fun. I just love that. You do mostly ground up developments. Is that correct? Today? Yes. I mean, if you go back 2009, 2010, you could buy things far below construction costs. It didn't make sense to develop. Today, yes, prices have come up sufficiently that we can build for a pretty substantial discount compared with buying things on the open market. Today, when if you have a 200-unit apartment complex come on the market, most brokers treat that like an auction. And there'll be 20 offers and people pay too much and all that kind of craziness. And I don't want to be the winning bidder with 19 other offers behind me. That's crazy. We can build a product where there's excess demand and a shortage of supply. Then we can create something out of nothing. There's no competition. We can build it at a discount to the market and then have an opportunity to refinance out of that, pull our chips off the table and go do it again. That's a great rinse and repeat, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's, uh, that's great. So you do, what's your average size? I mean, give or take, I mean, we're not talking single families here, obviously residences. So what's your kind of your average or what's your threshold that you look for to get into a project? Today, whether a project is a 10 unit building, a 20 unit building or a 200 unit building, it's kind of almost all the same. It's just another zero. The steps you have to go through are basically the same. So we'll do 10-unit buildings. I've got a few of them under construction right now in Philadelphia. 
They're fairly straightforward. They're, you know, I call it a base single. They're kind of a bunt these days. It's not a home run. The numbers are great, but they're small projects. Today, we have several projects that are 30 to $40 million size projects that ground up development that we're, we're undertaking. And that's our focus these days. Is that mostly multifamily or are you mixing in commercial? Or It's a bit of both. We're doing multifamily. We're doing senior assisted living, medical office, and workforce housing. Oh, wow. Okay. Workforce housing. My oil field background. You're not making man camps, are you? Kind of. So if you go to southern Louisiana, southwestern Louisiana, what you find is there's an area there where there's literally hundreds of billions of natural gas, petrochemical, and seaport expansions underway over the next decade. And a lot of the construction workers that come into these towns, you know, they're working for companies like Chicago Bridge and Iron, Floor Corporation, that are usually the construction contractors for the major oil companies, companies like Sasol and British Gas, now part of Royal Dutch. They're working on these mega plants, and they get a housing allowance because there's a shortage of housing. And what some will go into a man camp, but it's not that desirable. Many of them will prefer to use their housing allowance to go buy an RV, put it on a payment plan, and at the end of each month, they've got a few extra dollars in their pocket, and at the end of their contract, they have an RV that they own outright as opposed to wasting that money on a hotel night. So it's a better deal for them. So we've actually built an RV park specifically servicing that sector of the economy. In fact, that's going to be opening in the next week. Oh, that's interesting. I like that model as well. I used to have to stay in some hotels. Well, when I was on the rigs, they had trailer houses for us mostly, but we would occasionally have to go get what I call a shoddy hotel room. When you won't even take your sleep on the bed, you got to put your sleeping bag down first right. and, <laughs> and put everything on top. So that's quite an interesting mix that you have. And I mean, with the whole, the man camp and yeah, Southern Louisiana, we're seeing a lot of construction in my normal day job with insurance and risk. So I think it's great to mention that you, you're finding needs, like you said, where there's little supply, big demand, and you fill that need, you answer that question or solve that problem, and it becomes profitable for you. I'm curious, did you start off doing the typical single family rentals, fix and flips, or did you just jump into larger projects? No, we started kind of like everyone else does. I got my start in the Ottawa market, specifically servicing a segment of the market that I saw there was a need, Ottawa being the nation's capital. We have parliamentary staff, embassy staff, military officers, and government contractors that are coming into town on a medium-term basis. And this was before the days of Airbnb, basically started building a portfolio in the downtown core within walking distance of parliament, specifically servicing that market. So it was medium-term, fully furnished executive rentals. I knew what their monthly housing allowance was, and so I simply priced the product to meet that and said, okay, for that price point, what product can I deliver that's going to be the right product? And built a very good business with that. It was only a good business. It wasn't a great business, but it was a good business. It was, if it was profitable, it was good, huh? Okay. And so now you're into the big developments. That's, uh, I guess, has like a lot of fledgling real estate investors. You always That's always so far down the road. But within less than 10 years, you've gone from you know, creating your own Airbnb, so to speak, midterm rentals into quite a stellar portfolio of, of projects. And you have your own real estate podcast. Yes. It's daily, isn't it? That is a commitment, ladies and gentlemen. Take it from me. I do a weekly podcast. And to come up with content and to produce it and get it out there every day is a feat that uh, is worthy of applause. So well, thank I, I you. It's, you it's been a lot of fun. This is the Real Estate Espresso podcast. It's your daily shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. And it's seven days a week. 
During the weekdays, it's five minutes. On the weekend, it is a little bit longer interview style with notable people from the world of real estate investing. The idea behind the podcast, look, there's a lot of great shows out there, very established shows. If you look, and I think you and I talked about this at the Podcast Movement Conference, that the average listener who subscribes to podcasts subscribes to six and listens to five because that's all they have time for. So if I'm going to attract a listener over to my show, who am I going to kick out? Am I going to kick out Tim Ferriss? Am I going to kick out you? Am I going to kick out the real estate guys? Who am I going to displace? It's not obvious. And so I designed a show that was five minutes so that I didn't have to kick anybody out. I would kind of slip in below the radar. And the feedback that I've been getting from listeners is that it's working. In fact, many listeners say to me that they will listen to my show first ahead of more established shows because they know they can commit to five minutes. They can't necessarily commit to an hour. I've literally digested your episode at a stoplight commuting in the morning and everything is succinct and it's boom, it's right there. Complete opposite of my long-winded uh, <laughs> shenanigans. Here. First off, how do we listen to, how does the listener, how can they find you? It's on 14 different platforms. So whatever is your favorite podcast platform, whether it's iTunes or Google Podcasts, CastBox, Podbean, the list goes on and on. Amazon Alexa, pretty much anywhere you search for podcasts, you'll find it. Excellent. Okay. There's a Google search of real estate espresso. Yep. Should pull you right up into uh, Victor's homepage there. And it's espresso spelled the way that you would spell the Italian coffee. So E-S-P-R-E-S-S-O. And as a fan of espresso, I, I really I thought that was catchy. <laughs> Just a couple more questions. because I, In your honor, I'm going to keep our interview a little, little shorter than normal. But what I did want to ask you is, in the sense that when you go raise money, are you raising it? mostly from accredited investors, people that are quote unquote wealthy enough to make decisions uh, or at least where the American government thinks they're wealthy enough and sophisticated enough to, right, to make right. their own investing decisions. Are you dealing with that? Are you pulling from Joe, the plumber type people or who's your target? Who are you going for? That's a great question. Increasingly it's the higher net worth individuals because the projects are larger. And one of the things that I've always believed is that You've got to have a fit. You've got to have that perfect alignment between the goals for your project and the goals for the money. And if you don't have that perfect fit, it's not going to work. The analogy that I sometimes use is it's it's kind of like buying a pair of shoes. If you see the most beautiful pair of shoes and gosh, it's your lucky day, they're on sale. They don't fit. You're not a buyer. It doesn't matter how beautiful they are or how deeply discounted they are. If they don't fit, you're not a buyer. And it's the same with money. We talk about shoes and everyone gets it instantly. You talk about money, all of a sudden people get weird about it. It's exactly the same. It really is. So if you're dealing with a high net worth family, the more sophisticated investors are much more clear about what their investment criteria are. The unsophisticated investor typically says, well, my goal is to make money and not lose money. And that's kind of about it. But a sophisticated investor has a much more precise definition of what they're looking for. They might say, I'm only looking for medical office buildings at an 8% cap rate where my minimum investment is $5 million and it's a five-year term and you know this control structure, that tax consequence. They'll have a dozen criteria that you need to meet. And if you only meet 11 out of 12, it's not going to work. You got to meet them all. So I kind of prefer the sophisticated investor, the accredited investor, because it's much clearer when it fits and when it doesn't. So you don't waste time. You don't waste time trying to get something that almost works to work, because if it almost works, it doesn't. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 
there's no such thing as half pregnant, right? Right. <laughs> it's either all or, or none. Right. That brings me, actually brings me up to a question. Who is the regulatory authority in Canada? In the U.S., we have the Securities and Exchange Commission. Who handles, oversees that, uh, that part of investing? Well, there's two answers to that question. So in the States, there is the SEC, but there's also the state-level securities commissions, and you have to adhere to both. In Canada, it's at the provincial level. So the larger provinces with the larger economies, British Columbia, Alberta, Ontario, have the most established securities commissions because they have the most transactions. Some of the smaller provinces that don't have the volume typically tend to copy the rules and regulations that were set by those more established provinces, but it is controlled at the provincial level. So in Ontario, it's the Ontario Securities Commission. As is often the case, it gets complex when you're dealing with multi-jurisdictional things. You've got a project in one geography, you've got investors from multiple geographies. It's a number one, a very fast moving area of the law. And number two, now you start to get multiple sets of rules involved. You kind of have to focus on those general principles that cut across the lowest common denominator of all of them. That's usually the way you approach it, just like you would in the US. Now, in the US, you've got the 506D, uh, the Reg D506C regulation that exempts you from a lot of the state filings. And that keeps it simple. Uh, so that definitely one benefit. But if you're using some of the other exemptions, you can very quickly open up a maze of rules that you got to meet. Interesting. I, I have some friends that were from Canada have now since moved back. And we we're just talking about mortgages, for example, and the right. differences in the retail side of things. And they're not well versed with security. So that's I've got you captive here, so I wanted, to, <laughs> I wanted to find out. So I did not realize it was on the provincial level. So that's, that's quite interesting. Well, and, you know, the, and by the way, obviously, and none of your listeners should take anything that I say here as advice. You've got to seek your own uh, professional counsel, both accounting and securities attorney, to get any advice. So simply sharing with you my perspective, what I believe is that there's really three types of securities out there. You know, there's registered securities. So, for example, if you go out and buy shares in General Electric or General Motors, those are registered securities. The second are exempt securities, meaning they fall under one exemption, one or more exemptions. And then the third are illegal. And there's really only those three categories. So unless you want to go through the time, expense, and brain damage of doing a registered security, hopefully you're aiming for number two. And there's many different exemptions that can apply. So, for example, in some jurisdictions, there might be a mortgage exemption. If you have a loan with a mortgage, it may not be considered a security or may, may fall under a mortgage exemption, depending on your jurisdiction. So there's lots of them. You know, in Ontario, they started naming the exemptions with letters of the alphabet. And when they got to the letters Z and they ran out, they kept going. There's quite a few that you can potentially take advantage of if, if it fits your case. That's it's a good point. I mean, thank you for providing your perspective. But as always, yeah, go seek legal and, of course, accounting advice, or in this case, securities advice from an attorney. All right. Well, you also have a book that I didn't realize this when, when I spoke to you earlier, but it, the forward is written by Robert Helms of the Real, Real Estate, Estate Guys Radio Show. I've listened to them for, oh, geez, I don't know how long, a good while. I will say they were one of the first podcasts that I really got into when I dove in head first. So the title of the book is Magnetic Capital, How to Raise All the Money You Need for Any Worthy Venture. How did that come about? It was very interesting. So, you know, since developed uh, quite a strong friendship with the real estate guys, I'm now part of their faculty. So I speak regularly at their events. They're great people, both Robert Helms and Russell Gray. Love those guys. They're just great people. The way it came about, 
I met Robert Helms a few years ago, and you know we were having dinner in Dallas. We were talking a bit about the radio show, and I said, I know a few people I could maybe get you some good guests. And so they said, okay, sure. And one of the guests that I look to get on their show is someone who's attached to a controversial figure. His name is George Ross. He was uh, Mr. Trump's right-hand man for about 37 years. And the guy who I would consider to be really the guy responsible for a lot of the success of the Trump organization. You know, a lot of the deal-making happened behind the scenes was done by George. He's a master. Like, he really is quite masterful. Before he worked for Donald, he worked for Saul Goldman in New York and did 700 deals for him. Uh, So really one of the top people in the industry. So I set up an interview with Robert Helms at George's house uh, out on Long Island. And then the next day I recorded an interview with Robert for the Real Estate Guys show. And my business coach listened to that interview and said, Victor, you've got a book in that interview. And I said, yeah, I'm busy working on another book because I'm (laughs) still working on that other book. But my business coach, you know, insisted. He said, no, you got to write this one. So I went home that night and outlined 13 chapters. And I said, yeah, he's kind of right. And so that was the genesis of the book Magnetic Capital was out of that interview with Robert Helms. That's quite interesting because I think, you know, as from a private lender, it's, well, I always think back to that movie, The Hunt for Red October, when the Americans finally get on the Russian sub and uh, what's his name? The Baldwin brother speaks Russian and uh, Sean Connery's character says, oh, you you speak Russian. He said, yeah, it's wise to know the ways of your enemy. Sean Connery (laughs) says, it is. (laughs) I don't look at it as so adversarial, but I think because what you touched on earlier, money is such a funny thing. I mean, the way a lot of people I know and I was raised, like you never speak of money outside of your house, right? That's parents, the kids. You didn't even really speak about your parents' money, but you certainly didn't go outside and talk to other people about it, either, either how much you make or what something costs or how much debt you're in. So you didn't want to brag and you didn't want to show how stupid you were. That was kind of the, the umbrella of, that was surrounded money. Enter into the real estate world where if you don't ask, you're not going to get, right? So, but it's still, people are still quite funny about it, I think. I have a slight, I have a kind of an interesting perspective on this. And if I'm standing in front of a room full of investors, uh, you know, I'll ask people to put up their hand if they're uncomfortable asking for money. And almost every hand goes up, as it should. And what I do is I don't ask for money. I never do. What I do is I offer people the opportunity to collaborate with me on a project. That's a very different posture. And I'm not awkward at all about it. You know, if an investor is contemplating doing something with us, you know, I'll ask them straight up, how much money are you looking to put to work? And there's nothing uncomfortable about that because I'm not asking them for money. I'm looking to solve one of their problems. We have investors who have really come to rely on the cash flow from our projects to fund their life. And we often as investors forget that. If we're putting together a deal, we think it's all about us, but it's not. You know, we're really providing a very valuable service for the people that are investing in our projects. And we've got a fiduciary responsibility to do safe projects and do good business and hire the right teams and all of that stuff that is necessary to execute well. But we're really solving one of their problems. Because where else are you going to put your money that's safe? Are you going to buy Apple stock right now? Are you going to buy Alibaba? Like, seriously. You know, are you going to buy mutual funds? Like, where are you going to put your money? For real. That's exactly. It's, well, you're going to stick it in a bank and get 1%, not even match inflation. So 
by default, you're losing money, exactly. even though it's quote unquote safe. And look, I'm not one of these people that says I'll never invest in the stock market. I believe in diversity. I believe you ride, you know, if there's a horse that's running good, you put your money on that horse, right? I mean, you, you know, things are moving. We've had a heck of a good run since the last, you know, eight, since 08, 09. And at some point it will come to an end, but, you know, stocks values go down. The thing I like about real estate and especially private lending is I put like you into a project, right? So I take, it becomes very passive for me because I put my money into that project and my trust into, in your case, the, the developer. Now that money works. It's secured by real estate. It's secured by insurance policies. So even if somebody goes bankrupt, there are still things in play to protect my investment. Whereas I, Apple, you want to do Apple right now? Facebook right now? Or, I mean, the fundamentals are crazy. So well, I think you touched on it because it is the fundamentals. If I hand you a $100 bill and I offer you that $100 bill for 80 bucks, you'll take that deal. You can make a clean 20 the next minute, right? Correct. If I offer you a 100-unit apartment building for 20% off, you'll take that deal. Or 30% off, you'll take that deal because you've got a very clear understanding of valuation. But when a stock is trading at 25 times earnings and it's requiring 15, 20% growth year over year to sustain that multiple, what's it really worth? It's really, really hard to tell. And that's part of the problem is you say, well, it's going to go up. Yeah, but really? Understanding its true intrinsic value becomes much more difficult. I learned this lesson several different times, more than once, that the independent investor really has no control. They really don't. And I grew up in the world of stocks and bonds. My uncle owned a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. He was one of the thousand members of the exchange, you know, basically a license to print money. So I kind of came from that world. And today I hold almost no stock in public companies because I learned that the individual investor really has no control. You know, when I was a, an officer of a U.S. public company and listened to our CEO go on Jim Cramer's TV show and lie to the American public, I was going, man, how many boardrooms in America is this happening? Is this the only one? And the answer is no. You're right. So I feel like with what we're doing, our, I feel like we have a tremendous amount of control. You know, if, if I build a 10-unit apartment building and my total investment's a million four and it appraises for two million and I get back a million four from the bank once it's leased up and stabilized, I feel like I have a tremendous amount of control. Absolutely. This is still one of the few games where I always looked at investing like a casino. So the world's biggest casinos in New York Stock Exchange, Toronto Stock Exchange, right? The DAX and everything else. However, it's not geared for us. We're not that. We're certainly not the house. The way I see Wall Street looks at us is we're the pensioners that come in once a month with, uh, with our social security check. Let's try to make it into something. And I, what I liked about being, especially private lending and real estate is take the same principles, but. I have much, so many more choices now, so many more variables that are under my control. I can limit my loan to value on how much I'm going to loan out. You know, I can make my terms. I can make, you know, I have the folks use my attorneys, for example, because they work for me and not for the borrower. And like you said, back to that control is, um, I, just, I don't know, I, as personally, I just feel a lot more comfortable in this realm and making decisions on investments. Because if I go to the stock market, then I'm no better than the monkey with a dart and a whole list of companies. Well, that's right. I mean, think about what percentage of the market today, the market volume is being determined by program trading, where you basically have 
software programs from different investment houses trying to beat each other at the same game? And what percentage of the trades are really just software programs trying to duke it out on a daily basis, trying to squeeze out a few extra pennies in arbitrage based on volatility that they see? And this stock is three cents cheaper in London, so I'm going to move money that way. And it's crazy. It's not investing anymore. I'm glad you said it's not investing anymore because I couldn't agree more with you. All right. Well, we could go on and on, and we probably will, especially about your past with Rush on tour. But I do want to circle back a few things here. How can people get a copy of your book? What's the best way to find it? The best way is to, uh, you can order it from Amazon. It'll get it quicker. If you want an autographed copy, you can order directly from my website at victorjm.com. It'll be a little bit slower, but you can get an autographed copy. And if you want to reach out to me directly, be happy to interact with your listeners. You can reach me directly at victor at victorjm.com. Excellent. Are you on social media? We are. Facebook, Twitter. But the best place to get in touch with me is at my website, victorjm.com. There's a form you can fill out. In fact, one of the things that would be helpful for your listeners is I've always believed that it is important to really understand when you're looking to raise money, try and assess that fit. So I've got a a gift for your listeners. It's called a magnetism scorecard. And what this does is it allows you to enter in the attributes of any particular deal that you're trying to put together and assess where you have gaps. Because what I discovered along the way is that if you're raising money, there's a certain set of fundamentals that you got to meet. And if you meet them all, it's actually very easy. But if you have one or more that are missing, then raising money is remarkably difficult. So the magnetism scorecard will help you essentially self-assess how you're doing with any particular investor and any particular opportunity and where you've got gaps that you've got to go address. You can download that directly from my website at victorjm.com. Very good. Well, all these, go to the show notes, all this information and links and everything will be there. So if you're driving or running at the gym, don't worry about it. Just go to privatelinderpodcast.com, show notes with Victor, and you'll get all the links you need. Victor, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure and an honor, and I'm sorry it took me so long to get you on the show, but I'm certainly glad that I did. Yeah, you've opened a can of worms. I'm going to blow up your personal email with Rush Trivia questions and and investing uh, questions as well. But thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Wow, there you have it, Lender Nation. Victor Minash, real estate developer from Ottawa, Canada, and the United States. With a background in tech, that was a fascinating interview. And as you could probably hear, the most fascinating part was when he said he was a roadie and had worked uh, on a rush, few Rush shows. So I apologize that we went off a little off to down that rabbit hole there, but it took every fiber of my being not to turn this into a Rush fan podcast or a Rush stories podcast, but to keep it into, uh, in private lending and to real estate. So I do want to thank Victor for coming on. He... Great guy. Like I said, met him back in the summer of, of 18 at a podcast movement a conference and just anyway, hit it off and love how different and yet sometimes similar our paths are a little bit or, or what we do. So if you want to get in touch with Victor, please go to the show notes page or you can go to victorjm.com for more information and to get the link to his book and to the magnetism scorecard that he spoke about that's on his website. So victorjm.com or privatelinderpodcast.com. Click on the ep- this episode, and there you'll find all the notes and links to today's episode.
And while you're at it, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and review or Stitcher, SoundCloud, whatever platform you use to listen to this podcast. Uh, greatly appreciate it. That helps more people just like you find this podcast and help spread the word. So I'd appreciate it if you could do that. Hit me up on social media. Send me an email, Keith at privatelenderpodcast.com or send some smoke signals. I'd love to hear from you. And until next episode, I wish you guys all the best. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Private Lender Podcast with your host, Keith Baker. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit privatelenderpodcast.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review, and we'll catch you next time.